uh, as I was praying this morning, uh, I was burdened about this message because this affects every person here. Because all of you have parents, and many of you are parents. And if you're like me, uh, when I uh, uh, was a young man, uh, we were a young couple growing up. Uh, my wife and I, we, we could not have children. And so we decided to adopt with the assumption that, uh, you know, that we could create the poster child for Christianity. Uh, well, he ate the poster. And uh, many times, in fact, 22 times between the time that he came into our home at four days old and he left our home in his mid-twenties, I stood in a court of law with him and heard various sentences pronounced upon him. He's been in three state prisons, multiple county and city jails. And today as I stand before you, he is on death row awaiting execution. And so the last time I stood in a court of law with him was when I heard the death sentence pronounced. And by the way, interestingly enough, that same hour, I got a phone call from my dad that my mother was dying. And that began uh, a series of deaths, including my brother, mother, father, and wife, over the next few years that God helped me through. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because the message today could easily be interpreted by you as a justification of a man, uh, a father whose heart is broken and whose spirit is is guilty. Can we just get that elephant out of the room? And, and you may say, you just went to the Bible to get peace for yourself. Yes, you're right. I confess. And when I went to the Bible, you know, it's a strange thing about when, when you go from what men say to what God says. Sometimes there's a big difference. I like what the old country preacher said. He said, this here Bible sure do shed a lot of light on them their commentaries. Well, you know, I have been taught all of my life, uh, based on Proverbs 22, 6, that if you train up a child in the way he should go when he's old, he'll not depart from it, meaning good kids are merely the product of good parenting, and bad kids are the result of bad parenting. And so as a result, many parents grow up with enormous guilt. And many kids grow up with none because it's all mom and dad's fault. So we're going to address something squarely, and uh, this is rather a didactic message, perhaps more than a motivational message, but I hope, it will, I hope it will stir up the gift that is in you. I hope that it will provoke you to righteousness. I hope it will even drive you to the Word of God and your knees as you search out the scriptures for yourselves. But what I'm about to give you, I searched out on my knees because I was at the point of considering quitting the ministry and uh, giving up on God because, after all, he said, if you train your kids right, they'll do right. And so, did he lie? Or was I so grossly negligent as a parent that I produced a murderer. Well, let's find out what the Bible has to say. Pray with me first. Father, be with us now. How we need your presence and your wisdom. I pray that in a very special way that you would speak to our hearts today from the Word. I pray, God, that you would be with every young person in this room who is so prone to find faults and flaws and even sins in their parents' lives. And so sensitive to poor parenting that they begin to blame their parents, angry, bitter sometimes. I pray, God, that you would help them to see their sole responsibility before God. And I pray for every parent, every parent of a young child who is just beginning 
that wonderful pilgrimage where they take a little child by the hand and lead them through life. I pray you would give them an insight and a balance to their approach that will benefit that child. And I pray for the parents of older children, children who have gone astray, prodigals, who the devil uses as ammunition against a heartbroken mother or father that this is your fault. Now help us to see from the Word of God your mind and your words and help us to live accordingly and make those decisions that are most pleasing to you. And I pray especially that we may see the forgiveness of God and the grace of God in this passage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The context of the passage we're looking at today is when Israel was in captivity. The whole nation had been, captive, had, had been captured and taken into Babylon. They were slaves. They were, uh, in some cases, they had a degree of freedom. And this was a punishment of God because of their rebellion against Him. But they would not accept it as their responsibility. In fact, they called upon a proverb that had been established years before, put codified and put in this pithy, easy to quote proverb that took the responsibility off of themselves and put it squarely upon their parents. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 18 because God comes to the end of His patience with this proverb. It has been mentioned, by the way, in Jeremiah and Deuteronomy. Again now in Ezekiel chapter 18, The word of the Lord came unto me again, saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, and here's the proverb, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now let me, let me put that in another way. What they're saying is, our parents reacted, or acted rather, our parents acted, we merely reacted to our parents. And so it's not our fault that we do what we do. We're just a reflection of our parenting. Does this sound at all familiar? By the way, are you aware that um, it was a Jewish man who introduced to the church around the turn of the last century a belief uh, mirroring this. There's, it's a perfect mirror of the, what this is. Only it's found, it's, a, it's an application that we later made as a church with Proverbs 22.6. And basically, this Jewish man said, of course, raised in this tradition, children are simply a reflection of parenting. Pure and simple. Well, we come to one place in the scripture, and one of the rare places where God says, I've had it. The next verse he says, As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. And why? Because in verse 4 he says, Behold, all souls are mine as the soul of the Father. So also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And now for the first time in a long time, the Jews in captivity are confronted with a shocking truth. Instead of hiding behind the corporate responsibility of their parents or the national responsibility of the nation, God cuts through all of that with a burning sword and points the point of that sword right toward their own heart and says, you have to give account for your own sin. And you will not stand before the judgment seat of Christ with mama or with papa. You will be there with a naked soul. And by the way, that's one of the reasons we have so much confusion today about the outcome of children. Why do children end up the way they do? Why do they make the decisions they make? Why do, why do they take the directions they make? Why do they, why do they ultimately walk to, uh, to the destiny that they have? Who, who's, uh, who is responsible for the child? Well, we have been taught it's a parent, it's a youth pastor, it's a pastor, it's a Christian school teacher, it's everybody but the child. Remember that? Slogan some years ago, I, some of you may remember this, don't leave your keys in the car and help a good boy go bad. What? 
You mean it's my fault if somebody steals my car? And I, I'm going to change this thief's nature by, by keeping the keys out of my car? But that's the way we think. And so, who is responsible? Well, the frustration comes on the horns of a dilemma. On the one hand, we have Proverbs 22.6 that says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. On the other hand, we have Romans 14.23 that says, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, how can you give account of yourself to God and blame your parents at the same time? How can you give account of yourself to God? How can you stand before God with that naked soul and bring somebody up? So what happened? Around 1900, Sigmund Freud, uh, 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 yeah, Freud, uh, I, I sometimes think fraud. And it's, it's hard to keep those words separate. He, uh, he came up with a massive shift in thinking that shook the world and changed almost everyone's worldview. In fact, as you said here today, you probably believe part of Freud's uh, platform of psychodynamics, as it's called. Do you believe in the unconscious mind? Do you believe in the ego? Do you believe in the id? Do you believe in the superego? Do you believe in the Oedipus complex? which I hope you don't because that's so gross it's almost, it's almost embarrassing even to talk about it. Or do, or do you believe in determinism? Do you believe that you are determined by factors beyond your control to be the way you are? So what Freud did is he introduced psychic determinism which basically said, my mama slapped me when I was two, she bruised my id and I never got over it so it's all my mother's fault that I have these problems. I had a person sitting counseling one time. I had a wife and a husband, and she said to me, would you please tell my husband that I have this disorder, this disorder, and this disorder. This is the way I am constituted. I cannot change. Would you tell my husband to learn to live with me the way I am? I said, no, I can't tell him that. Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. And the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. How dare we look in the face of God and shake our puny fist at him and insist to God that we can't change. If you have believed that lie, you have a stronghold in your heart. The Bible talks about strongholds. It, it refers to them as casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And we need to bring into captivity every thought. So what is a stronghold? Let me tell you what a stronghold is. When you get to the place... When you call impossible what God says is possible, you got a stronghold. Oh, I can't stop this addiction. You got a stronghold. I can't change. You got a stronghold. I can't help being the way I am. Then you've got a stronghold. And it's built on a foundation of lies until those lies are attacked and replaced with the truth. You will never have stability in your life because if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so, there's been a shift in this determinism. First, it was psychic determinism. I'm determined the way I am because of the way uh, I was psychically treated. Then there was racial determinism. I can't help being the way that I am because the color of my skin. Then there's environmental determinism. Well, of course, I grew up in the slum, so how can I help but be this way? And, and then there's, there's a, a economic determinism. And then there is genetic determinism. Oh, I, I, you see, I, I have genes. I have a genes of alcoholism. I have genes of homosexuality. I have genes of, uh, of these propensities and these proclivities. And so I am naturally then directed in a certain way, and I can't help the way I am. Now we live in an age of chemical and biological determinism. 
And the shift in counseling and psychiatry has taken a major quantum shift from talk therapy to chemical therapy. And biological moralists have been quoted in Newsweek magazine as saying that the day is coming when every emotion of man can be treated with a chemical. You want to love more? There'll be a pill. You want to be happy and not depressed? Oh, we already got stuff for that. And you know why? Because behind the thinking of biological morality is the belief of chemical determinism that we're merely the product of the chemicals of our body because, ladies and gentlemen, we're nothing more than an animal. We're material. We're just a bunch of chemicals. So all we got to do is alter the chemicals. It's not a soul that's in question. It's not a conscience that is challenged. It's not sin that is mentioned. We have been excused on a national scale of every sin imaginable to man because we were born that way. Well, I think there's a, big, a bigger answer and a greater God than that. So the responsibility for a child's behavior has seen a dramatic shift. The church now blames the parents. The parents blame the church. Both blame the school. The Christian school blames the world. Public school blames society. Society blames the government. Government blames the culture. Culture blames the media. And media blames the consumer. But missing in all of that is that nobody blames the kid. You know, it's like he gets off scot-free. When I was one, I, 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 I was... Uh, the poet said, when I was one, I, my, mom, I, my mom hid my dolly... Uh, I'm trying to find this. When I was one, my mommy had my dolly in the, in the trunk. So it, fo it follows naturally that I'm always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that's why I suffer now from kleptomania. When I was three, I suffered from ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally I poisoned all my lovers. I'm so glad that I have learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. And by the way, that's a lesson we have learned very well, isn't it? I woke up one time to Hank Williams Jr. singing on the clock radio. Now, that's an experience. And he was singing, and it just kind of drilled into the marrow of my brain. Don't ask me, Hank. Uh, why, do you, why do you drink? Why do you roll dope? Why do you live by the songs that you wrote? Put yourself in my position, and then you'll know it's a family tradition. So you see Hank Sr. drank. Hank Sr. smoked and Hank Sr. used dope so Hank Jr. had to because it's a family tradition. Now we're going we're to cover three topics here this morning very quickly as, as time permits. The first is this. Sour grapes have a lousy aftertaste. The second is if sour grapes taste so bad why do we keep eating them? And the third is how do I wash these grape stains out? How do I overcome a past? Well, first of all, sour grapes have a lousy aftertaste. Now, I want you to realize as God goes through this passage of the Bible in Ezekiel chapter 18, that he it devotes the entire chapter to individual responsibility and personal accountability. I mean, he goes after the individual and he, he literally he sets up three scenarios as a means of cutting down the false thinking of the Jews that it's merely the parents that produce the child. To do that, he uses three generations. The first one is found in verse 5. If you read from verse 5 to verse 9, you will find one of the most godly men with 15 sterling character qualities. Very difficult and in those days, and even in our day, to find a father as good as this one was. We won't take time to read all of it. But in verse 10, he has a son. This is the second generation. The son, uh, the Bible says, is a robber, a shedder of blood. That means murderer. Uh, doeth alike to any one of these things, and doeth not any of those duties. Hath eaten upon the mountains, defiled his neighbor's wife. He's an adulterer. He hath oppressed the poor and the needy. He's a thief, 
He's spoiled by violence. He loves to beat people up. He hath not restored the pledge, doesn't keep his word. He hath lifted up his eyes to the idols and hath committed abomination. He's an idolater. He has not repaid interest. He has, hath given forth upon usury or, or, or required more than is needed. Hath taken increase. Shall he then live? Well, now let, let me ask you a question. How could such a good father produce such a good son? And why would God require accountability in the life of the son if it's the father's fault? In fact, he ends it up, he shall not live, verse 13, he hath done all these abominations, he shall surely live, his blood shall be upon him, the goodness of his father notwithstanding. But God's not finished because this boy has a son. All right, now, don't get ahead of me. Don't read ahead of me too much right now because I know you're interested in this. I love to see people interested in the Bible, by the way. But let's just stop right now here and let's conclude what any rational group of this size in America would conclude. Okay, now, Brother Benny, you're telling me that this boy grew up in a home of a murderer, chronic murderer, adulterer, robber, beater up of people, thief. Oh, man, he doesn't stand a chance. Isn't that the way we think? I grew up in a drunkard's home. My parents were alcoholics. My parents were divorced. My parents were abusive. My parents were this and that and this and that. And the world says, you don't have a chance. The world says, you will go through life for the rest of your life on crippled legs. You will never have the opportunity that the kids on the right side of the tracks got. But what does God say? Verse 14, now lo, if he, the murderer, the robber, beget a son. Now watch this phrase, that seeth all his father's sins which he hath done. Can you imagine what that means? Are you thinking? Don't use too much imagination. But what it means is he watched everything his dad did. He watched every time his dad plunged a knife into somebody's back. He watched every time his dad committed adultery. He watched every time his dad took money from somebody else. He watched every time his dad beat somebody to a pulp in front of him. What kind of chance does he have? Not only is he raised in, uh, by the wrong environment and an ungodly parent, he has to be eyewitness to it. And the world would say once again, no chance for this kid. But what does God say? God says, and considereth. That word means he put on a balance the benefits and the damages of his father's sin upon his father. So he saw his father murder and he watched it. He considered it. He, he looked at what, what's the good and in, in the evil that came out of that. Well, very obviously there was more evil than good. He saw uh, the robbery. He saw the beatings. He saw the adultery. No good came out. So he considereth. And what did he decide? He doeth not such like. He said, I'm not going to be like my father. And by the way, listen to me, young people. Listen to me, children. Every one of you have that choice. Every one of you have a choice of looking at your parents and making a decision. I won't be like that. You do not have to lie down and play dead. You do not have to be passive. You do not have to let the devil wipe his feet on you and throw in the towel and give up and say, well, I can't help it. I am predestined for, to a, wife, a life of sinfulness. Well, that's a lie of the devil. Now, verse 15, 16, and 17, you will find a list of character qualities in this grandson that are astounding, particularly in the light of what he grew up with. He is, the, he is the polar opposite of his father and more akin to his grandfather. But every generation, here's what God's saying. Uh, a great dad had a rotten son. That rotten son became a rotten father and he had a good son. And God says, how's that happen? 
Does the parent determine the outcome of the child or does the child make a personal choice to follow God? Well, let's read on. In verse 18, As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, and did that which is not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. Now watch the Jewish reaction. Yet say ye, why? This is the Jews. Why? Doth not the son bear the iniquity of the father? Meaning, isn't the son's action simply a reflection of his parenting? And isn't it true, God, that you cannot punish me because it's my father's fault? Now here's God's answer. When the son, verse 19, when the son had done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Doesn't the Bible have a marvelous way of cutting through all the fat of psychological theories? How in the world someone can understand, can, can and embrace one of the 250 systems of psychology out there as a Christian and ignore this passage is beyond me. This is the truth of the Word of God. But I want you to see their response to God. They said, they said in verse 19, why? Then they say in verse 25, the way of the Lord is not equal. Verse 29, thus saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal. In other words, that's not fair. Well, think with me a minute now. If you're a Jew living in that day, and, uh, and, the Jew, and the, um, uh, you believe that it's the parents' fault, you're the way you are, and you can't help it, here's your thinking. Listen, the all, all the sin I have is hereditary. I inherited this from my parents. So now, my response to my parents is merely reactionary. I just react to them. Now, God, you judge me for what my parents created? That's arbitrary. Do I have to go through that again? If my sin is hereditary, my response is reactionary, and your judgment, God, is arbitrary. In other words, God, you're not fair to judge me for doing what I can't help doing because of the way my parents trained me. Can I ask a question at this point? How is God going to get anybody under conviction? How's the youth group of any Baptist church ever going to have a revival? How is the nation ever going to be spared the judgment of God when we become expert blame shifters and we blame our parents or somebody or something else for everything? And by the way, we become expert at that. We become very good at it. So the doctrine of God is distorted. But not just the doctrine of God. It's the doctrine of parenting. I blame my dad for everything. I was very good at that. Uh, my dad was terribly ignorant, and I was supremely intelligent. And so I ran away from home at age 16, and... Uh, and I blamed my dad for the, my problems and everything I was like. So finally one day, I decided, now th this is my imagination. My imagination is like a loose cannon on the deck, you know, just bouncing from gunnel to gunnel. A lot of destruction there. But sometimes it goes off in the right direction. Well, <laughs> I, I, I decided I'm gonna, I am going to interview my dad with a, a man-on-the-street interview approach, you know. So I, in my imagination, I never had the nerve to do this in person. But in my imagination, I took this microphone and I said, Dad, now everybody knows that we are merely the product of our parenting. And Dad, the hang-ups that I have in my life are your fault because you were a bad dad. Now how come, Dad, you were a bad dad to me to give me these hang-ups? And I put the microphone in his face. You know what he said? Well, Jimmy, it's not my fault. It's the way I was brought up. Okay, I'll go to Grandpa. Grandpa, how come you were a bad dad to my dad to make him a bad dad to me 
and give me these hang-ups. And you know what Grandpa said? Well, Jimmy, it's not my fault. It's the way I was brought up. And can I just stop right here and ask you a question? Young people, think with me. If you can blame your parents for the problems you have, can't they blame their parents for the problem they had that caused your problems? Now, if you can blame their parents for your parents' problems that created your problems, can't your grandparents blame their parents? And do you know where this is taking us? All the way back to the garden. And, I, and you, know what, you know what Adam said. Remember what Adam said when God came at him? Oh, it, my God, it ain't my fault. It's a woman you gave me. Oh, don't men love that one. And, and what did Eve say? Oh, it's not my fault, God. It's, it, it's the snakes. And he didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> and neither do you. Are you listening to me? Where does the buck stop here? The buck has to stop somewhere. And that's what God's saying. God's saying, no, there is a, there is a distortion of the doctrine of parenting. And by the way, there is the distortion of the doctrine of personal choice. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16 says that you are, know you not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey or slaves to obey, literally, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Why can two kids come out of the same home under the same parenting, under the same teaching, and one kid walk with God and the other not? Personal choice. And we cannot diminish free will and personal choice. So there is a doctrinal distortion of the doctrine of parenting and the doctrine of personal choice and the doctrine of God. Then there is a convictional confusion, especially about personal guilt. I was in, uh, I was in San Francisco and I, I preached and, and after the service down the middle aisle... I'm standing up at the front just talking with some people and I look down the middle aisle and here's a mother dragging a teenage boy. I think he was a boy. There was so much hair and so much cloth on this kid I wasn't quite sure. His hat was on backwards and um, his pants were down to his knees. Fortunately, his shirt was down to his ankles. He had tattoos all over every inch of exposed skin almost and he must have had 15 pounds of jewelry draping from his nose, his eyebrows, his ears, his lip, his tongue and even had a chain from his ear to his, uh, to his uh, uh, lip. And she's dragging him and she's weeping him and she, oh, I mean, everybody can hear. Oh, Brother Benny, where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong? I tried to raise him right. I tried to teach him about God, but now he's a gangbanger and he's on drugs and he's, a, he's, a, he's a, a fighting the law. Where did I go wrong? Now, you know what the, the teenager's doing at this point? He leans against the end of a pew. He folds his arm with a look of studied, sullen disdain upon his face. He rolls his eyes as if to say, will you tell the old lady where she went wrong so we can get out of here? And I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong with this picture? God, listen to me, parents. God is trying to put his hand of conviction on that boy's head. And you know what the mama bear just did? She reached over, grabbed God's hand of conviction, ripped it off her son's head, put it on her head, and now the boy who has the guilt and needs repentance gets none, and the mother who doesn't need the guilt gets it all. Does anybody else see something wrong with that picture? And parents, you don't do your child any, any service when you in their presence bewail your failure as a parent. Because all you do is reinforce in their mind that it was your fault that they're the way they are at all. There is convictional confusion about personal guilt. There's convictional confusion about personal sin. If I am a victim and if I am dysfunctional, how can I ever be convicted of sin? 
It's, it's just the way I'm constituted. It's the way my chemicals came together. It's the way my psyche was bruised and reacted to mistreatment. I'm just a product of my environment, of my chemicals, and of my parents. I can't help being the way that I am. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. Don't tell me I have any responsibility. Well, it's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. It's environment's fault. It's a society's fault. It's the law's fault. It's the school's fault. It's the boss's fault. It's the government's fault. We, we got everywhere in the world a point. And by the way, there's also a great damage to personal hope. Have you ever heard this statement? And I've heard it many times. And they, and they say it with such a plumb, such authority. 85% of a child's personality is formed by age six. And I always felt sorry for the parent of the seven-year-old. <laughs> I only got 15% to work with the rest of my life. <laughs> is that crazy or what? Because you see, from the moment you get saved, my friend, God has 100% to work with. Whatever the devil tells you, he's got 100%. But we sit around and we believe this lie. Oh, well, my child is past age six and I've already lost my chance. I can't help him anymore. Now, this obviously deteriorates into a, a whole language, a victim vocabulary. The adult says, I can't change. The child says, I don't have to change. And so we are no longer... Uh, sinners were victims. We're dysfunctional. You know, I'm not real smart, but I know if a mama sinner marries a papa sinner and they have a baby, they're going to have a baby sinner. Now, if you got a mama sinner and a papa sinner and a baby sinner under the one roof, you got one dysfunctional home. It's called sin. My friend, you came from a sinful home. You are in a sinful home. You will produce a sinful home. Deal with it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that doeth good. Do you really think for a moment that a person will ever come to see their need of salvation until they see their sinful state? And how can they possibly see their sinful state when they have been so isolated, insulated, and cushioned by the philosophy of the world and the vocabulary of, uh, of psychology to the point we're convinced that we have no responsibility at all. Don't be surprised, my friends, when the society and the culture we live in gets e that evil men wax worse and worse and iniquity grows unto iniquity. It's happening. Secondly, if sour grapes taste so bad, why do we keep eating them? If this is true, why do we embrace it? Well, for one... A philosophy is taught as a theology. The philosophy is determinism. The philosophy is, well, you, if you train your kids right, they'll turn out right. If you don't train them right, they turn out wrong. And so we have taken a philosophy. And by the way, historically, as far as I can tell, this philosophy was introduced to America by a preacher in New York City who read Freud's readings, uh, writings around 1900. And he got into the pulpit and he said, this is the answer. And as far as I can tell from a historical survey, it wasn't until Freud came on the scene with this that preachers in America began to preach Proverbs 22.6 deterministically. Meaning you determine how your child turns out. Your parents determine how you turn out. We accommodated with a theology a worldly philosophy. Or, and by the way, can I say, can I make a point here that there's a restriction on this philosophy? Now, it, it, let, let's, let's be honest. If you have home A and home B, and home A <clears throat> is a godly uh, Christian home, and the parents of home A are both saved. They go to a Bible-preaching church. They have prayer with their children. They lead their children to Christ. They put them in a Christian school. They make sure they go to Christian camp and are in a good youth group where they're exposed to the gospel all the time. And no one would argue that home A does not have an advantage over home B, who both parents are alcoholics and drug addicts. And the only mention of God is as a swear word. They never go to church. They watch their, uh, their parents ply their trade and their sin in their own presence. No one would argue that a child from home A has an advantage over a child from home B. 
But here, here's the problem. Uh, there's, a, there's limitations to that. For example, uh, it's limited in its duration. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Right? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Listen to me well. The moment, Christian friend, the moment you come to Christ, the moment you put your sins under the blood, the moment you become a born-again Christian, you are given by God Himself every resource you need to live a victorious Christian life. He gives you the Word of God to guide you, a pastor to teach you. He gives you church members to support you, the Holy Spirit to empower you. He gives you a Father to encourage you. He gives you everything. How dare we then say? How dare we say? Oh, well, you don't understand. I have monsters in my past. You don't understand how I was treated as a child. You don't understand what happened to me, the awful things that were done to me. Everyone tells me that I will live with the scars of that the rest of my life and I will never rise above it. You don't understand, Brother Benny. No, my friend, you don't understand God. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. God wants you to know there's victory ahead for you and no matter what the monsters of your past, the moment you came to Christ, He put the sword in your hand to slay every monster with. But you know what we do? We sheathe the sword. We drop the sword and we use anything but the sword to defeat those dragons and we wonder why we live in defeat. It's limited in duration. It's limited in in intensity, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. People, you know, if I if I can say this, if there's a if there's a, a plan of the devil, it is to keep you so isolated, so ashamed of your sin, of your failure, that you just know. Nobody's been through this before. Nobody would understand, and I better keep my mouth shut. Because look at all these people around here at Capital City Baptist Church. Look at all the smiling faces. Look at all the well-dressed folks holding their Bibles and shouting hallelujah. Why, they would never understand what I'm going through. But guess what? If you go talk to them, that's the same thing they're thinking. <laughs> what a wonderful strategy of the devil to convince every one of you that everyone else in the room who is like you and every sin you're struggling with, other people struggle with, believe the same thing you believe that they can't dare share their problems with you, you wouldn't understand. And so we march in and we sing, oh, how I love Jesus and victory in Jesus and glory, hallelujah. And we're scared to death that the person next to us knows what awful skeletons we have in our closet because they would condemn me and curse me and shame me. So the devil says, keep your mouth shut. But my friend, here's what God says. There had no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. And he will not allow you, he will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Amen. Now what does that say about our God? It says to me that God is not going to leave you swinging in the wind, that God is not going to abandon you, that God is not going to forsake you, that God is not going to target you because of some sin of your past. God is faithful. He will never allow you to face a temptation greater than you're able to bear because He loves you. So there are, there are limitations. We have to understand that. There's another we have to consider. Go back to Exodus 20 because this is where it all started. The thinking of the Jews. And I want, you to, I want you to get something about the heart of God in these Ten Commandments because one of these commandments, of course, is about having other gods. 
Verse 4, thou shalt, we're in Exodus 20, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Verse 5, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. By the way, that sentence right there is what turned Oprah from Christianity to New Age. I'm a jealous God. She did not know the meaning of holy jealousy. And she thought, this is an awful God that we serve. We need to have a better way. And I, I don't apologize for that. If you're an Oprah lover, uh, you might ought to examine what her worldview really is. Because I got to tell you, it's not a biblical worldview. That was free. But he said, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now, here's the way the Jews interpreted that. Uh, I am going to sin in the same way my parents sinned for three to four generations because they initiated this sin so I can't help it. What God is saying here to corporate Israel, and he is speaking to corporate Israel, is any nation that has idolatry at its core is going to suffer the consequences of idolatry for three or four generations. And I've heard a lot of sermons preached on that text that basically we are like the previous generation. But notice he, what he says here. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. But verse 6 he says... And showing mercy unto thousands of generations of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, here, here's, this is sort of like this. Parents, if you, if you were sick and tired of your son, your little boy, hitting his little sister, and you came to him and said, look, Junior, here's the deal. You hit your sister one more time, and I'm going to slap your wrist, and I'm going to slap it hard. But son, if you are nice to your sister and you love your sister and you hug your sister and help her, I'm going to send you to Disney World. <laughs> Who wouldn't choose Disney World unless you really wanted to hit your sister? <laughs> now, if you really wanted to hit your sister, you're going to say, oh, fooey. I'd rather hit my sister and take that little bit of punishment. You see what God's doing? He's making the choice so decidedly aggravated and, and exaggerated. Here, Disney World! Or slap your wrist. But because the Jews wanted their sin so badly, they wanted their cake and eat it too, they interpreted this passage not as an expression of God's mercy, but as an expression of of their parents' sinfulness. And they said, now we can sin and justify our sin by blaming our parents, and we can have fun and party hardy all night. That's what they did. And they did it for generations, and then they took that and codified it into a proverb that says, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 17. i got to hurry here. So if sour grapes taste so bad, why do we keep eating them? Because a philosophy of the world has been taught as a theology of the word. But secondly, because a general principle has been taught as an absolute promise. Now, let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud. In the book of Proverbs, are all the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs absolute promises or are they general principles? Don't answer that. Just think a minute. You see, people who say that Proverbs are an absolute promise say, there you go. See, look at Proverbs 22.6. Train, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. Promise. Absolute promise from God. Really? What about Proverbs 15.1? A soft answer turneth away wrath. Well, take that to the streets of South Central L.A. Okay, it's a promise, right? A guy walks up to you, sticks a gun in your face. He says, your money or your life. Soft answer turns away. Oh, you had a hard day, didn't you? <laughs> I bet your mom and your daddy beat you bad. 
Now, can I ask you a question? After you pick yourself up, <laughs> if you're able, what conclusions are you going to come to if you interpret Proverbs 15.1 as an absolute promise? Oh, it's all my fault. I didn't have a soft enough answer. That's why that guy shot me. <laughs> or worse, or worse, God lied to me. I had a soft answer. You see, the moment you take a general... Proverb is a general principle. Here's a proverb. Get a college education and you'll have a good job. Really? <laughs> How about this one? Don't play in the street, you'll get hit by a car. I played in the street my whole life. I hit the cars. They didn't hit me. See, what we're doing is, is we're taking a general principle and we're converting it into an absolute promise. And when you do that with Proverbs 22, 6, parents, and your kids go wayward, you've got one of two choices. It's my fault. Or you throw in the towel and you walk away from God because you said, you say to yourself, I did everything I knew to do and my child turned out wrong. God lied to me. Now, there are six interpretations of this verse. One interpretation says, train your child right, they'll do right. But that means you determine the outcome of your child. The second one says, you train them according to their bent, their personal proclivities, their individual tastes and preferences, their personalities. You, find, you don't treat every child the same, but you, you, you find the bent or the inclination of the personality of each child and within the parameters of that bent, you train them. But that's still deterministic because you're saying you determine the child's outcome. Then there's one that says, well, if you train them right, they'll go away, but they'll come back. Probably taught by the parent of a teenager. <laughs> but still, it's deterministic. So if I train my child right, if he goes away, he'll come back. The fourth one is, uh, this, this interpretation says, this isn't a promise at all. This is a warning. You train up the child in the way he wants to go, he'll get so entrenched in his sin, he will never leave it. Well, that's deterministic too, only on a negative way. And then there is the vocational interpretation that says, this is talking about a trade. In other words, when Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, you, you train them to be a carpenter. And when they get old, they'll never forget the skills they learned in carpentry. They'll always have a job. And the sixth interpretation is that this is a general principle and not an absolute promise. So why do we believe in determinism? And, and if, if sour grapes taste so bad, why do we keep eating them? Because a philosophy is taught as a theology and a general principle is taught as an absolute promise. But thirdly, oh, and by the way, can I say this to you? Why do you think that bad kids can come from a good environment? Like the second generation of our text, like Adam and Eve raised in a perfect, sinless environment. Like the prodigal son, like the nation Israel. Are you aware that there was a father-child relationship between God and Israel? And are you aware in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2 that God said to his children as a father, I have nurtured you, I have brought you up as children, and you have rebelled against me. Would anybody dare stand up and say, the reason Israel rebelled was because of poor parenting? And how about, how about good kids that come from bad backgrounds? Like the, second, or like the second generation in our text, or the third generation, whose father was horrible, but he considered and doeth not such like. Well, we got to consider that we confuse an influence with a cause. Now, think about this. Are we doing too much thinking, Pastor? Okay. I, some of these folks are looking at me like a cow looks at a new gate, you know. <laughs> well, think about this for a minute now. We confuse an influence with a cause. I was visiting my son on death row not terribly long ago. And we have some good talks. We have to talk through 
glass, you know, and, but we're in the visitation room. And I said to him, I said, son, have I ever done anything to hurt you, to let you down? He said, yeah, dad. I said, what have I done? He, he, he mentioned a couple of things. I think the one that stood out the most was as, as he was growing up, I was a pastor. I was very much involved in my church ministry. He said, Dad, you were never there for me. You were there for everybody else, but you weren't there for me. We'd be at a ball game, and you'd get a call, and you'd rush off to the emergency room, or you'd go help somebody, counsel somebody, or you'd see somebody and get distracted and start witnessing, but you weren't there for me. And I said, son, you're right. And I, I did what I think everybody needs to do who wants a reconciliation, and that is not an apology. Apologies are not biblical. They're not unbiblical. But the Bible refers re to reconciliation as forgiving from the heart. Not the hip. Not the lip. And besides, an apology doesn't require any response except it's about time you came. It just shows how wicked you were and I was right all along. I mean, we don't respond that way, but we can. I asked him to forgive me. And when I asked him to forgive me, I confessed my fault. I let him know God was speaking to me. I handed him now the opportunity of saying, I forgive you in his time and in his way, but he knew I was requesting a response. A half a bridge does not go, uh, does not uh, uh, span the chasm. It has to be a bridge from both sides. Is that possible engineeringly? Anyway, I don't think that's the way you build a bridge. <laughs> I probably wouldn't want to drive over one, but you understand, don't, don't ruin my metaphor, okay. No. We build a bridge between, and you know what he said to me? He said, yeah, Dad, I forgive you. And he leaned into the glass, and he looked me right in the eye. He said, yeah, Dad, I forgive you, but you didn't pull the trigger. You know what he said? Dad, you had an influence in my life but I chose to sin. Do you see the difference in an influence and a cause? Parents, you have an influence in your child's life. And by the way, you're going to stand before God and you're going to answer for that. And if you fail to share the word, if you fail to pray, if you fail to bring their little hearts to Christ, if you fail to protect them, or God forbid, if you abuse them, that's an influence. You can have an influence negatively. You can have, have an influence positively. And you will answer to God for that influence. And don't ever forget that. And I don't want to minimize that in maximizing the cause of behavior. But ultimately the cause is one thing. Personal choice. Every time we sin... It is not because of factors beyond our control. It is not because of mitigating factors, as we like to argue in court. The mitigating factors are an influence, yes, but ultimately the reason we are called to stand before a tribunal of law is because the law recognizes that the influence is notwithstanding. You chose to do this. so we confuse that influence with a cause. Now, quickly, how do we wash these grape stains out? Well, verse 4 of our text says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul that sinneth, or as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Here is the cure. Let, let me take a little different approach here and, and a positive approach and say, First of all, learn to enjoy the personal responsibility of God to us. You're His. You belong to Him. And in fact, did you know, according to Psalm 139, that before you were born, all your members were written in a book when as yet there were none of them? That means this, my friend. 
that before you were ever born or a gleam in your parents' eye, God had written down in a book how tall you would be, what color your skin would be, what color your hair would be. He had it all planned out. Which, by the way, flies into the face of this unbiblical, ungodly, murderous logic of an abortionist. We say, well, the child's going to be retarded, going to have Down syndrome, going to have fingers missing. And so, uh, you know, Dr. Duguid says to uh, mother, feel bad, you're going to have to kill that baby. You don't want to live with that baby. But you know what God says? Wait a minute. A long time ago, I wrote everything down about that baby. I planned for that baby to come in the world just like that baby came in the world. And you're going to go against my instructions and against my plan and against my purpose just so you can relax a little bit? You see the sin of that? But understand this, my friend. I don't know what your background is. I don't know who you are, but I know this. Before you were ever born, God had a plan for your life. You're not an accident. He didn't look over the battlements of heaven and say, "Uh uh-oh, that one got past me. No, it's intentional. You are what you are, and you are where you are, and you are who you are because of what God is. God has a plan for you. Enjoy that. But also... We need to find our personal resources in God. If all souls are mine, then my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. This is good, isn't it? But that's not the intention of the text. The intention intention of the text is that we need to face our personal responsibility to God. Now look at it again, verse 4. He says, behold, this is the end of the argument. I don't want to hear this proverb anymore. All souls are mine as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And so what that means is that every one of us need to face our personal responsibility to God. Now parents, perhaps the best thing you can do is to teach your children to take that responsibility. Yes, you need to be a good influence, but you need to stop hindering God's conviction in the life of your child. You need to bring them to Christ, and you need to trust God as a parent, by the way, for the upbringing of that child. And use your techniques and your methods, but don't depend on them, because the king's heart, and certainly the child's heart, is in the hand of the Lord. And as the rivers and water he turneth it with us, whoever he will. And God is much more pleased with a parent who will fall on their face, on their knees with an open Bible, than a parent who always goes to the psychological text to get an idea or a method as to how to change their child. And so young people today, can I, can I recommend something to you? You have to make a personal choice. For, or you have to face a personal decision here, and you have to face your responsibility for every choice you make. Don't blame your parents for your lies. Don't blame your parents for your stealing. Don't blame your parents for your rebellion. And by the way, all you young people who are blaming your parents for all your faults, how many of you have made a list of this, your successes that you credit your parents with? Has anybody ever heard a teenager say, I want to thank God that I, I, would not, I would not have done this or this or this without my parents? Some do, but not very many. You know what you hear? Uh, my old man, my old lady. It's her fault. What I need to do is just get out of here. If I could get out of this house, I could be on my own. I, 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 I'd show them. You know how many millions of teenagers before you thought the same way? Do you know how many millions of teenagers went off into sin and got ensnared by friends because they wouldn't trust God to work through their parents? And maybe that's the bottom line. And in all in all, I want you to look at the last two verses of Ezekiel 18 as we close out here. He says, Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed. And make you a new heart and a new spirit. 
For why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. You can, just, can you just see the mercy in his heart here? So he says, turn yourselves and live. Turn back to me. Now, I may have told this story before, but I want to hear it. <laughs> there was a fellow years ago who uh, was being trained to be a football coach. Uh, a scout, actually, trained to be a football scout. And he went with his trainer to his first game as a trainee to learn how to scout football talent. On the very first play of the game, a guy got knocked down, stayed down. They carried him off on a gurney. And so Mike, the trainee, said to his trainer, trying to impress him, well, I guess we don't want that guy, do we? And his trainer said, no, I guess not. On the second play, another guy got knocked down. He stayed down. They carried him off on a gurney. And uh, Mike said to his trainer, we don't want him either, do we? And his trainer says, no, I guess not. But there was one guy, he got knocked down and he got up. And he got knocked down again. Every play got knocked down. His, his uh, helmet was dented and scratched and his face mask was full of grass and his uni uniform was torn and muddy and bloody, but he got up every time. And finally Mike says, that's the guy we want, isn't it? And his trainer said, no, I want the guy knocking everybody down. <laughs> now you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, hear me well, brethren. Be not overcome of evil. Do you know the rest of this? But what? Overcome evil with good. See, you don't have to be overcome with the evil of your past, your heritage, your lineage. You don't have to be overcome of the evil of your parents or their parents. You don't have to be overcome of the evil of the, where you came from, my friend. You can overcome evil with good. And what greater good is there than to love God with all of your heart and your mind, your soul, and your strength and face your responsibility to Him?